Our New Testament scripture reading for the sermon is from Galatians chapter 3. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. O God, whose Son, Jesus, is the good shepherd of your people, grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us each by name and follow where he leads, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God forever and ever. Amen. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I invite you, if you have a Bible handy, to look in Genesis 17. There you will find our scripture text for the sermon. Or if you'd like to follow along in your worship order, the text is also printed there. It's good to find it in the Bible, though, because you won't always have a worship order with you. And it's good to see just how early this story that we're going to look at uh, appears in the scripture. So it's at the very beginning of the Bible and the very first book of the Bible. We've been doing a study of, uh, of covenants for the last couple of weeks. And I want to refresh your memory on a couple of things. We've seen that every time God makes a covenant with people... He's making the same covenant, the covenant of grace, and he's renewing that covenant each time he draws near to someone. The covenant he makes is a covenant that he makes alone and by himself without man's participation. And so it's a one-way covenant that God makes with man. And then something I hope you pick up on today is that each time God comes to renew covenant with people, it's usually hard on the heels of something terrible that has just happened. So in the very first covenant we saw, it was the fall of man, fall of Adam and Eve at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And hard on the heels of that fall, God comes in to demonstrate his grace and make a covenant with these sinners to save them and preserve their lives. Last week, we saw that just before God made a covenant with Noah to preserve and save his life and the life of his descendants, The world had come into a very bad place, a very dark place. And you might even say that it was a kind of second fall of man. And God uh, judged the world, but delivered his people through that. 
And tonight, as we enter into the story of the life of Abraham and how God made a covenant with him, you'll see that in Genesis 11, you have a kind of third fall of man. Man just repeating the story over and over again, but living in rebellion against God, trying to form a center around which he can live and build a tower that will protect him from any possible floods that might come his way because he no longer believes God And yet, hard on the heels of that judgment that God brings at the Tower of Babel, God establishes once again His covenant of grace with His people. And that brings us to the story of God's covenant relationship with a man who started out named Abram and then later was given the name Abraham as he adopted part of God's name into his own. And so with all of that as background, our sermon text for the evening comes from Galatians, I'm sorry, from Genesis 15. And I would encourage you, if you are willing and able, to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Genesis 15. And the word of God reads. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river, the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And that is the word of the Lord. 
May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching and the hearing of his word and all the church says may be seated. I want to give you a little background sketch of Abram's life up to this point. After the flood, men rallied to one place and built a tower that they hoped would reach into the sky. The first skyscraper we know of. God came down to look at their little tower. Confused their languages and scattered them all over the earth because he had commanded man to fill the earth. To multiply and subdue the land. And yet here people are living in rebellion. Abram shows up in the land of Ur, which is beyond the promised land. It's the place where the tower had been built. And yet he grows up there with his family, worshiping idols, worshiping false gods. And it's in the midst of that that God appears to him and calls him away from his father's idols, calls him away from his homeland and says, come and I will take you to a land. I will show you something. He doesn't tell him where he's going. He simply says, follow me. Abraham follows God. He's walking by faith, obeying God's call. Doesn't come without struggles. Abraham struggles to trust and obey God in every way, just as we do. He's a man with a very weak faith initially, but he's Stumbling towards ecstasy, you might say. He's fumbling and stumbling towards glory. He wanders around this land that God has promised to give him. And everywhere he goes, the scripture says that he would pitch his tent and build an altar. So he would live there and worship there. And then God would call him somewhere else. And throughout the story, he's walking the, the length and the breadth of the land. And everywhere he goes, God says, wherever your feet go, that's the land I'm giving you. Along the way, he encounters struggles. He lies about his wife. He's trying to help God fulfill God's purposes for his life. And it's not the only time he does that. He does this on several occasions. And each time Abram tries to help God fulfill God's promises to him, it ends in disaster. It ends in conflict. And God is gracious to him. And God forgives him. And God perseveres with him and keeps reminding him of his promises. By the time we get to Genesis 15, Abram has been walking with God for many years, waiting on God to fulfill promises to him. And in Genesis 15, we find God who has dealt with Abraham throughout this relationship based on his grace, based on his mercy, It's in Genesis 15 that God comes and gives Abram this strong word of assurance. I am your shield. I am your reward. Or some translations say your reward will be very great. Up to this point in the relationship that Abram has with God, God has made it clear to Abram that this relationship is not just about Abram and not just about Abram's family, but it's about the world. That God intends to bless and reward the whole world through Abram. And not just through Abram, but through Abram's seed. The problem with that is Abram has no children. He has no offspring of his own. 
And yet he's trusting that God will keep his promise through him and that somehow God will provide for him some kind of offspring, some kind of descendant that God will use to bless the nations. And so he keeps trusting God. What I haven't told you yet is that when all of this happens, Abram is an old man. He's older than any man in this room. And so he begins his life with God in the advanced stages of his life. Not when he was a young man and had plenty of time to work it out, but as an older man. He was 75 when God called him to move from his comfy and cozy home in Ur of the Chaldees to go to a land I will show you. Let's go on an adventure. Adventure is out there, Abram. Let's move from this land that you know to a land you don't know. And by the way, you get to live in a tent. Explain that to your wife. I'm going to put you on a perpetual camping trip around the land of Canaan. Be sure to tell her that all of this land is your land. I'm going to give it to you. Only I'm not really going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to your descendants 400 years from now. But don't worry, it's all going to work out. You're going to live to an advanced age. And then you're going to rest with your fathers. Deal or no deal. That's where Abram is. And so he's walking with God, and along the way, you know, he has questions. So God comes to him in Genesis 15 and makes this phenomenal promise to him. It's a promise that seems too good to be true. Your number, uh, the number of your descendants will match the number of the stars in the heavens. So he calls him out at night, look at the sky. Even if he were living here and he went out and saw the number of stars that we can see with our limited field of vision and the, uh, the pollution and the city lights obscuring our vision, there's still an awful lot of stars up there, right? So if you had to count that many, wow, that's more descendants than I can imagine and far more than I can imagine now that I don't have any children, And yet Abram looks up at the stars of the sky. He hears the promise of God and he believes God. He trusts him. He believes that God will do what he promised to do. And in this promise and in the believing of this promise, God declares Abram to be a righteous man. He justifies him by faith. Abram hasn't done anything for that. God just declares him to be righteous. And he continues to walk with God, sojourn with God, trusting and obeying God. But God does something here to prove his promise to him. You see, Abram does what many of us do when we hear the promise of God. We some of us are bolder than others. Some of us are more humble, but we somehow in some way, as if God couldn't read the motives of our heart, we somehow want to ask God, how in the world can I know that this is actually going to happen? That's what Abram does. And we see others throughout scripture doing the same kind of thing. How can I know? I believe you help my unbelief. How can I know that you are going to keep your word? And that's where we get to this gruesome story that we just read, this story that happens at night where God cuts a covenant with Abraham. Again, his name is Abram at this point, but he cuts a covenant with him and he does it in this graphic way of Abram taking animals and cutting them in half and putting their sides against each other. So he makes a trail 
of animal carcasses that have been butchered and slaughtered. And the blood is spilled and their bodies are laid one across from the other. And now there's a path and the blood is running into that path between them. And in the ancient Near East, when people would make covenant, those who were making the covenant would each pass through that blood path. And they were saying to one another, I've made a promise to you. I intend to keep my promise. If I break my promise, then you can treat me as these animals have been treated. You may cut me in half, destroy my life, shed my blood. That's what I deserve if I break this covenant. Abram's familiar with this sort of thing. And so he knows when God establishes a covenant, this is what is expected. They didn't just make this up on the spot. But the twist in the story is this, that they're waiting and they wait long enough that birds of prey come and descend upon the carcasses. That might seem like a random detail in the story, but what it tells us in the context of Scripture is that there are curses attached to this. Anytime you see birds of prey descending on carcasses in the Scripture, then you know that that land or that person who's been destroyed or those armies have been judged and now the birds of prey are coming to wipe them out. It's a sign of cursing. And so God waits long enough for the birds of prey to come and devour or pick at these, uh, these sacrificed animals. Abram begins to drive them away. It appears that now he is going to get involved somehow in the making of this covenant. And then God stops him, puts a stop to it. How does he do that? He knocks him out. A deep and dreadful sleep comes over Abram. And while Abram is knocked out, he's unconscious. In other words, he's not participating in the making of this covenant. While he is unconscious, God performs his redemptive work. And he does it without Abram's help. This is reminiscent of what God did in the garden when he created Adam. He made Adam. He put him in the garden. A suitable helper needed to be, couldn't be found and needed to be made for Adam. So God put Adam into a deep sleep. And while Adam was unconscious, while he was knocked out, God did this beautiful, creative work of making a suitable helper for him. Well, Abram now appears as a kind of new Adam, a new man. And he is put into a deep and dreadful sleep. And while he is asleep, God does this glorious and majestic work of cutting covenant with Abram. And what we see in the story is very peculiar to us. Because God himself walks through the blood path, but he does it in the form of strange symbols. A smoking fire pot comes passing through this blood trail. God appears in these signs and symbols. They represent him. They represent his person and his work. And they pass through. And God is saying that if he breaks his covenant with Abram, that he should be treated like these animals have been treated. And that would be good enough. But we'll see that it's actually more than that. There's more going on than meets the eye. But the point I want you to see here is that God alone is walking the blood path to dramatize his intention to keep this everlasting covenant of grace and save his people from the curse of sin and death. 
We find out later in the story of the scriptures that the cross is tied to this event. And when Jesus Christ is crucified, it is not simply another human tragedy. It is a divine victory over the serpent. It is man entering into, it is the God man entering into the works of sinful man and experiencing the horrors of the sin of man, that what man intends for evil in the destruction of Jesus, God intends for good in the deliverance of his people. And so while Abram slept, God gives him a vision of the future. And God reveals to him what's about to happen over the next four centuries. And Abram gets a glimpse of redemptive history that his descendants will indeed number the stars. They will be like the sand of the seashore. His descendants are going to take a path and go to a place that no one could have imagined. They will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, and then they will be liberated by God and brought back to take possession of the land of Canaan. Now, we're an impatient people, and we might say, well, why in the world would God wait 400 years? Why not give Abram the land now? Abram responded to God and moved right now, and he's traveling around the land. So why would he have to wait? And God tells him why. Because the cup of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, God is still patient and merciful even towards the Amorites. But there will come a limit to his patience and a limit to his mercy. And even the Amorites will be judged. When will they be judged? When all of Abram's descendants come out of Egypt and go into the land of Canaan. So in this story, you see God has cut a covenant with Abram by putting his own life on the line. God has said to Abram, in answer to your question, how can you know that I will keep my promise? Here's how you can know. I just walked the blood path. And that's a sign and a symbol of God's commitment to keep his word, to keep his promise to Abram. But if that's not enough, you fast forward a little bit in the story and God comes back to Abram. Now, in in the between, again, Abram tries to help God fulfill his promise. This gets us into Genesis 16. Abram tries to help God, as we often do. God's dragging his feet. He's taking his time. My wife is tired of waiting. We don't like living in this tent. Where are the kids you promised us? That kind of thing. And so he and his wife come up with a plan to help the Lord, which in fact doesn't help the Lord or anyone else. It doesn't help Abram either. In fact, it slows everything down. And for their pains, God makes them wait about 14 years before he does the next thing. See, God has given them the promise. Here's the word of his promise. He's demonstrated his promise by walking the blood path. And then he comes back to Abram years later when they're all in the clear and Abram can't say and no one could ever say Abram had a hand in this. Abram helped God out. This was a cooperative effort between God and Abram. No, after 14 years, now that Abram is extra dead in his body, let's put it that way, when there's no shot that Abram and Sarai can have children. Now, they haven't had any for a century. Experience indicates that they're not going to have any. But just to make sure, God makes them wait. And then he comes to them and says, okay, 
Now that I have you exactly where I want you, and you are powerless to do anything about it, here's a promise. I'm going to give you a child. And he gives him a child, but the covenant promise comes with it. When the child is born, here's what's going to happen. You and all of your sons are going to wear in your bodies a sign of the covenant that I made with you when I walked the blood path. You're going to experience a little bit of that. Because I'm going to take a piece of the foreskin off of your body. And there's going to, I'm going to inflict a little pain on you. And there's going to be a little bit of bloodshed to remind you of the promise I made to you. You're going to wear that in your body all the days of your life. It's never going to go away. And it's going to be one time. There's one circumcision. You're not going to repeat this, okay? It's one time. And that becomes the sign and the seal of the covenant of grace that God made with Abram. And so Abram receives this sign. Now keep in mind that Abram was justified by faith when he was a Gentile in Genesis 15. He didn't become a Jew until he was circumcised all those years later. So he's justified by faith before he receives the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant. But he's to give the sign of the covenant to all of the males in his household. So all the servants who are there, old and young, they get the sign of the covenant. Why? Because they're a part of Abram's household. And he gives the sign of the covenant to all of his sons. And he has two. At this time, he has two. He has Ishmael. He was a teenager, so he's an adolescent. He's a teenager. He receives the sign of the covenant. Why? Because his father did. And who else received it? His little infant son received the sign of the covenant in his body. So some people in Abram's house received the sign of the covenant after they believed. Some of them received it before they believed. And tragically, some of them received it and never believed. But it was applied to all the males in Abram's house because God called Abram to trust and obey him in marking his family as a covenant family. And that's the story of Abraham and of Abram and how God established his covenant with him. Now, by the way, when God gave the sign of the covenant to Abram in his household, that's when Abram's name changed. Why? Because God put his name on Abram. And so he took part of his own name and he put it in Abram's name. And Abram went from being a mighty father, an exalted father, to the father of many. He was the father of many and he had two sons. How strange would that be? But he was named by faith, not by works. And he was named with a view of the future in mind, not just the present. Father of many, you see. Now what does that have to do with us and how does all of this tie into our story and our relationship with God? Well, were we to go back through all of these stories, but specifically Genesis 15 and then Genesis 17, we could see some remarkable connections between the shadows that appear in these stories and then the realities that come out in the life of Jesus and his people. For example, here in Genesis 15, 12 to 18, we see that the Lord God walked the blood path and cut a covenant with Abram and his descendants. But Paul explains to us in Galatians 3 that Jesus Christ is 
The true and better smoking fire pot. The glorious God-man whose body of clay was broken. Who walked the blood path of death. Who bore the flaming torch of the cross in his life. In order to cut a covenant in his blood with all people from every nation. I should say all his people from every nation. And that's why Paul says to the Galatians before your very eyes... Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. In Genesis 15, we see another shadow that the Lord God is the shield and the reward of Abram and his descendants. You go to Galatians and you find that the spirit of Christ is the shield and the great reward promised to all the nations who walk by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the Holy Spirit is the great reward and the shield for all who live by faith from Abram to you and to me and beyond us to the ends of the earth. For everyone who believes. In Genesis 15. Abram and his descendants are described as stars. They are like stars. But in Galatians 3, the nations who walk by the faith of Abram are also like stars because they are the true and better offspring of Abram. They shine like stars in the universe. In Genesis 15, the Lord God promised to give Abram and his descendants the land The land of the nations. And the nations are listed there. And we know that in the history of God's people. That came about through conflict and through warfare. As Joshua led the people into the land of promise. But in Galatians 3 we learn that Jesus Christ is the true and better seed and heir of Abram. And we would go on to say that he is the true and better Joshua. Who conquers the nations. Not by a sword and spear, but by his spirit and by the word of the gospel of grace. As God's people go on mission through the world, preaching the gospel of Christ, calling people to faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit through the people of God is overcoming one nation after another. God has promised to make Abram the heir of the world. And that promise is realized in Jesus Christ, who becomes the heir of all the world. The meek shall inherit the earth. In Genesis 17, we see this remarkable shadow that the Lord God gave Abram and his descendants. That is all the males, all the males, adults to infants, the sign of circumcision as a seal that makes uh, that God makes and keeps his promises. And in Galatians three, guess what we read? We read that the sign of the new covenant in Jesus Christ is water baptism. It is the sign and seal that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. But unlike the covenant that was given to Abram, the sign that was given to only males in Abram's context, the gospel is much more expansive and glorious. For now, the sign of the covenant is given to Male and female. It is given to adults and children. It is given to slave and free. It is given to Jew and Gentile. And so in all these things, we see the covenant of grace that God made with Abram and his descendants is then fulfilled 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ and all of those who are part of his church. And this is a beautiful story of how the gospel unfolds before our waking eyes. Well, as you consider your place in the world and your place in the story of God, it might be that like Abram, you find yourself at times struggling to believe. You do believe, but you want God to help your unbelief because it's so difficult to believe. You see the conditions and circumstances of your life contradicting the promises of God. And you live in that tension. Abram felt that in his life as well. What is the resolution to that tension? We're tempted to resolve the tensions between the promises of God and the conditions of our life by performing some work, by doing some deed, by trying to help God out in some way. We want to contribute some kind of effort. But as we see in the story of Abraham and his life, we see it in the story of Jesus in his life. The resolution that is provided by God is the only true and valid resolution. And that resolution comes back through non-natural means. It comes back by means of God's power and grace working even against, beyond and around, maybe sometimes through our own nature, but working in a way so that only God could gain the glory from it. We live in that tension. We pray for resolution to the tension. And the resolution is always found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So God has dealt with our sin problem, not only in Adam, but the sin problem we see running through our own hearts in Christ. He has dealt with the death problem, not only Uh, The death problem we see in the destruction of sin in the world. But he's dealt with a death that runs through our own hearts. And he deals with it in the person of Jesus Christ. And God has dealt with our isolation and individualism. Our fear of living in the world apart from God. Surrounded by darkness. By coming and entering into our story with us. God never broke his promise. And his death upon the cross in Jesus Christ demonstrates that he is both promise maker and promise keeper. We will never be treated the way the animals were treated, the way Christ was treated, because God has given himself for us in our place. And so in this way, we see the fulfillment of the great promise that he who hangs on a tree is cursed. And Jesus Christ was cursed for all of us. Though we never hung on a tree, we deserve to be cursed and to die the death that he died. But he died the death that we deserve, that we might live the life that he deserves. And this is the glorious gospel of Jesus. And more than this, God has given us the spirit to overcome our flesh. These are the great promises extended to us in the gospel. Now, you might struggle to believe all of these things, as I do. Some days are better than others. But I want to reassure you that those of you who stumble and struggle with these things are still walking in the steps of Abraham, who lived by faith even in the midst of his weakness. And God persevered with him and God preserved him through all of his sojourning. So no matter where he went, no matter how bad the conditions, no matter how difficult the circumstances of life, God stayed with him and kept him kept Abram in his good grace. Rest assured that he will do the same for you. This is the covenant of grace that he has made for you 
in Jesus Christ, and he will keep his promises to you. Let us pray together. Oh God, we do thank you for the promises you've made in Jesus, and that you keep all of them. We identify readily with our father Abraham, not in his moments of magnificent faith, perhaps, but more likely in his moments of weak faith and shaky faith. And yet somehow in the midst of all of these things, even his small faith was enough to please you. His small faith was enough for you to declare him a righteous man. And so wherever we are, as we look at the condition of our faith, perhaps today smaller than it was yesterday, perhaps bigger than it was the day before, whatever the conditions, we know that you are pleased with those who trust you, not because of the size and scope of their faith, but because of the size and scope of their Savior in whom they have put their faith. So as we trust in Jesus, we know that the object of our faith is unshakable and unbreakable. And we delight to know that He is our Savior and that we're justified by faith in Him, not by the doctrine of our justification by faith in Him. We do believe, we ask you to help our unbelief, for we struggle in these matters. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight in these days to come. Keep us from distractions. Keep us from things that would divert our attention away from Christ and His promises. Help us to live by the power of the Spirit and not by the weakness of our flesh. All these things we ask and pray in Jesus. Amen.